Well, the opening of Luke chapter 2 tells us how it is that Jesus, whose parents lived way up in Nazareth of Galilee, came to be born way down in the Judean village of Bethlehem, exactly where the prophet Micah, 700 years before, had said the Messiah would be born. Micah 5 verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah was the region right around Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. And thus this child, as Micah prophesied, would be the one who would inherit the throne of David, not only over Israel, but worldwide and everlasting throne. And this is also the one who was from of old, from everlasting. We see this is something only the God-man Jesus can fulfill. And in the providence of God, it was nothing other than the decree of Caesar Augustus that would bring this to pass. A decree seemingly as far removed as possible from God's saving purposes. A decree requiring universal registration for tax purposes. Now the fact that God would providentially include this kind of historical happening into his divine plan and that Luke would include it in his account of the birth of the Son of God, immediately distinguishes the birth of Jesus from all of the various pagan deities of ancient literature, who were never born or grew up in any actual, real, historical place or context. But Luke makes it clear that Jesus did. He was born in a specific village. He was born at a specific time. He was born under real rulers in a fallen world because he came to be a real savior of real people in the real world. Now, Caesar Augustus is one of the most famous rulers of all time. He was perhaps the most powerful ruler in the post-flood world up to that time. He originally was called Octavian, and he emerged to be the chief ruler of Rome, and he became the first man to be declared emperor of the Roman Empire. He reigned from 30 BC to 14 AD under the title Caesar Augustus, the August One, the Great One. He strengthened the military. And for his entire reign, Rome was at peace. With his leadership was born the famous period which was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He did a lot to advance the culture of the Roman Empire. He himself bragged near the end of his life, I found Rome bricks and I made it marble. He began all kinds of building programs and he set up a massive system of centralized government regulating commerce and trade. And it was pursuant to that great centralized regulatory and taxation scheme that Caesar ordered this census we read of in Luke chapter 2. 
And to help keep track of everyone, everybody had to go back to the city of their birth and register there. So Joseph, who was of the tribe of Judah and born in Bethlehem, had to return there to register. Bethlehem was a village in the hill country of Judah, about seven miles south of Jerusalem. So that would make it around a hundred miles south of Nazareth, which in that day was about a five-day journey. But it was higher in elevation. Even though you were heading south, you were going up. Bethlehem was about 2,600 feet above sea level, really about the same as we are here in Boise. But Nazareth was only about 1,100 feet above sea level. They were way up up there on the Sea of Galilee. And this is why Luke says that even though Joseph was traveling south, he was going up from Galilee down through Jerusalem to Bethlehem. As our story continues, we're told that it is when they got to Bethlehem and while they were staying there that the days were completed for Mary to be delivered. She went into labor and she brought forth her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now this is a point where we have several misconceptions over some of the details that Luke is telling us. We typically picture Joseph and Mary traveling with Mary nine months pregnant, going to go into labor at any moment, arriving in Bethlehem just right when she's going to deliver at any time. They're trying to get a room in an inn, but they're turned away because it's full, and so they have to spend the night in a stable where the birth pangs come upon Mary and she gives birth to Jesus. It is quite possible, actually, even likely, that Joseph and Mary traveled and arrived more in the middle part of Mary's pregnancy rather than waiting to the very end. You have to remember that Joseph was born and raised in Bethlehem. He had relatives in Bethlehem. And it would make sense, therefore, for them to stay with one of Joseph's relatives. And what throws us off once again here is the fact that in the English it uses the word in. There was no room for them in the inn. Well, in means something very definite to us. And the Greeks have a word very specific that means in, what we mean by in. But that's not the word that appears here in Luke. If you want to see an example of the real Greek word for in, it's the one that Jesus uses in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Good Samaritan takes up the injured man, takes him down the road, and then pays an innkeeper to keep the man for a number of days so he can heal up. But that's not the word that's used here. The word used here means the guest room in a residence which was usually upstairs. Typically in that day, the main family would live on the ground floor, but upstairs they would have one or more rooms that would be available for guests. So you'll see them called a guest room. You will also see them called an upper room. That's what's being talked about here. For his relatives in Bethlehem, the guest rooms were already taken up by other relatives. 
But typically at that time, it's not like they had to go down the road to a stable. Typically at that time, as I mentioned, the, the, the main family would live on the ground floor. And as part of the same structure as the house, you would have separated from the residence simply by a wall, an area that was kind of like a barn area, but again, part of the same structure, where certain domestic animals would be kept near the home, particularly in the wintertime. And it appears that is where Mary and Joseph are staying, in that part of the house that was owned by Joseph's relatives. And so that then explains the manger. And so Mary gives birth to Jesus and swaddles him. That's the way the Greek reads. It's a, it's a verb. She swaddles him. Swaddling cloths is not actually there. What it's saying is she bundled him up cozy and he, she lays him in the manger. If we move forward in the study, the scene suddenly shifts from in Bethlehem, the residence of Joseph's relatives in the barn-like area of it, out into the countryside to shepherds who were watching over their sheep. Now there were in the same country shepherds lying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Now this is the same command we heard the angel give to Zacharias when he appeared to him. He gave the same command to Mary when he appeared to her. This is the same command that when we read forward and look to the ministry of Jesus, we're going to hear Jesus say over and over again to his disciples. The reason we should not be afraid is because God has visited us in Christ. He has come near to us. He has become one of us in Christ. And he has come to bring salvation. So the angel continues, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all peoples. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now the word translated good tidings here is the word for gospel or good news. That's exactly what it means. And we need to understand that this word had a well-known usage at that time, which we tend to be completely ignorant of as modern Christians today. Because you see, in our day, gospel or good news is simply religious speak. But that was not at all the case when Jesus was born. In that day, everybody knew what the gospel was. The gospel was what was proclaimed whenever a new Caesar would ascend to the throne of the empire. They would declare the good news throughout the empire. Caesar was the one Lord. Now you could have as many gods as you wanted. The more, the merrier. But there was only one Lord. And that was Caesar. Caesar worship was already starting by the time Jesus was born and it was going in full force 
by the time Jesus ascended up into heaven around 30 AD and as that the first century went forward. Caesar wasn't worshipped in a man in a direct way in the way that we think. Uh, he, he was worshipped rather as a symbol. He was worshipped as the embodiment, the living representation of the genius and the greatness and the blessing of Rome to the world. Caesar was the name all people were to call upon. Caesar was the one who brought grace and peace to the world. You see, when you understand that, then you can understand why in Acts chapter 17, Paul and his fellow missionaries are dragged before the local rulers and charged with turning the world upside down. Revolution. They're charged with revolution. Why? Because they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So you see, the gospel of Jesus was not privatized religious speak in that day. It was inherently and unavoidably a counterclaim to autonomous man's efforts to play God, the height of which was seen in the various totalitarian schemes of the ancient world, from the Tower of Babel all through the four major empires of the Mediterranean world, Babylon, Persia and Greece, and now Rome, which was the most powerful expression of those empires. So talking about a gospel other than the gospel of Caesar, or talking about a lord or king other than Caesar, talking about a kingdom other than Caesar's, that was the kind of talk that could get you killed. And that was no joke as the people of Bethlehem will soon tragically learn when Herod sends Roman soldiers to slaughter all the baby boys two years old and under in order to ensure that the one born king, as the Magi had told Herod, would be dead. In spite of all of that, Jesus did not shy away from this inherent counterclaim During his ministry, we're told in Matthew 4.23, Jesus went about all Galilee preaching the gospel, the good news, the good news of what? Of the kingdom. Of his kingdom. The gospel and the kingdom go together. Cannot be separated. Now, Jesus' kingdom was not revolutionary in the normal way, though. Because it did not involve, as all these other empires and totalitarian schemes, it did not involve imposing a military regime on an unwilling world. That's what the empires of autonomous man did. And if the kingdom of Jesus did that, then it wouldn't be any different. It would just be more of the same. It would be one of those revolutions that's like all the other revolutions that leaves everything just as it was before. Jesus' kingdom, though, was truly revolutionary because it was a transformative kingdom brought to a world made willing by the power of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the disciples of Jesus. 
this transformative kingdom of Jesus does to every person, to every relationship, to every institution, every marriage, every family, every local house of worship, every community, every business, every grouping, every nation. It does to every aspect of human society what leaven does to a bread recipe. The leaven is small, very small. It's just a pinch. It's going into a huge recipe. What can it possibly do? Well, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. It works slowly. But in another sense, as soon as that leaven goes into the recipe, it's over. It's going to take a while, but there's no going back. Because the leaven is unlike every other ingredient. It's not inert. It's alive. It's alive. And it's gone into the recipe now. And over time, it's going to make the whole recipe alive. And it's going to make it rise up. That's what the kingdom of Jesus is like. So coming back to Luke, these shepherds are being told by an angel, no less, that a Jewish baby in a manger in the country village of Bethlehem was the Christ the anointed one, the promised son of David, who as Lord would bring great joy to all people. The angel tells the shepherds how they will see proof of the angel's message. The shepherds will find the babe swaddled in a manger. Verse 12. This will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. A better translation of that sentence would be on earth peace among men with whom God is well pleased. You can see in the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, for example, that's the way it is translated, and that is a more accurate translation. God sending His Son into the world to save us, that is certainly God's grace and goodwill toward the whole world and every single person. But the full and final fruit of God's goodwill is ultimately to those who by God's further intervening grace are brought to embrace the gracious gift of God's Son whom He has sent into the world. Those who believe the good news of Christ. Those are the ones with whom God is well pleased. Jesus talks about this paradox in John chapter 3. Right after the most famous verse in the Bible... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The very next verse, Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not the purpose. The purpose is so that the world through him might be saved. And nevertheless, when you're bringing light into darkness, it is going to still cause division no matter what the intentions are. 
there's going to be a division between those who embrace and believe in the one who is sent and those who do not. He who believes, Jesus says, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. With the millions and billions and trillions of sins that have been committed in human history, final judgment in in the big picture of it is going to come down to one thing. Those who believe in the Son of God who came as Savior and King and who purchased their pardon with His own blood. The King purchased your pardon with His own blood. Now that's a King you can follow. That's a King that you can get behind. That's what it's going to come down to. Jesus said, this is the condemnation. This is why the condemnation comes, even though the purpose for sending the Son was not condemnation, but salvation. He said, light has come into the world But men love darkness rather than might, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. God must engage in a further grace. God must not only send His Son. God has to start meddling. God has to meddle. God has to go where people don't want Him to go, which is into their hearts, into their minds, He has to do what they don't want Him to do, which is to open their eyes to the truth, to the emptiness they have inherited. He has to convict them of their own sins and of their own lostness. And He has to awaken faith within them and set them free from the snare of the devil. All of that grace is bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. So coming back to Luke's account, the angels depart. The shepherds hurry to Bethlehem to see the one of whom the angels spoke. And they find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just as the angel had said. And then the shepherds begin to make widely known what the angels had told them and what they themselves had seen. And those who heard marveled, and Mary treasured all these things in her heart the way that mothers do. Now, this is remarkable because the testimony of shepherds was not admitted or received into Roman courts because they were regarded of being of low character and therefore low veracity. Being a shepherd was one of those very few jobs that you could work pretty much regardless of what your past had been. And therefore, their veracity was guarded as being very low. They were not received as testimony into court. But here are all these shepherds testifying. And their testimony is received. It's received by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is a great thing that God has done. Unfortunately, in our day, our culture, which is so bound up in identity, politics, intersectionality, oppressor, oppressed, class warfare, essentially Marxist worldview type schemes, uh, this passage tends to be seen in that light. And so the way it is typically set forth is that 
God chose poor shepherds to hear the gospel announcement instead of the rich and powerful. But that's not accurate. Matthew, for example, tells us how God sent the message of the birth of his son to the Magi. The Magi were the kingmakers, powerful rulers of the Parthian Empire. That was what was left of the old Persian Empire east of Palestine. The one area the Roman Empire was never able to conquer. And through the Magi, God sent the message to King Herod himself. And through Herod to all the religious leaders of Israel. So the point here, the wonder here, is not that God privileges the poor over the rich. Indeed, God commands us to favor neither rich nor poor. Exodus 23, verses 3 through 6. Favor neither one. In other words, God wants nothing to do with our identity, politics, in any form. The point is that the gospel message is for everyone of every station and every background. And that indeed is what the angel told the shepherds. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all peoples. No matter what our background, the the gospel picks us up right where we are, not where we should be. You cannot clean yourself up so you can receive the gospel. You can't clean yourself up so you can come to Jesus. You come to Jesus to get clean. Only He can clean you up. He picks you up right where you are, not where you should be. But once He picks you up, He doesn't leave you where you are. He begins to take you forward to what you were created to be and what you were redeemed to be. He begins to move you forward. And that's exactly what we see with these shepherds. The shepherds return glorifying and praising God. These are changed men. Glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as were told. So let this then be our application this morning. Let us follow these shepherds. Let us glorify and praise God for the things we have heard and seen, both in the Word of God, in God's work in our lives, and in our midst as one local congregation of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.